And this is the Love the Cove podcast, where we'll be diving into covenant history and exploring what makes the Evangelical Covenant Church covenant as we move toward our future together as mission friends. Hi, friends. It's Jane Chow Pomeroy. Kathy and I have quite the episode for you today. We sat down with not one, but two guests to talk about our evangelical roots and identity. First, we sat down with Covenant historian Kurt Peterson, who talks about how the Covenant became evangelical. Next, we were joined by Dennis Edwards, New Testament scholar at North Park Seminary, who shares his perspective on the space we occupy within the contours of evangelicalism today. Welcome, Kurt. We're so glad that you are joining Love the Cove today to talk about how the covenant became evangelical. As we know, you're my spouse, but can you tell our audience why you're here today to talk about this specific topic? Sure. Currently, I run an educational foundation, but in a previous life, uh, I was a faculty member at North Park uh, for 12 years in the history department, and I wrote my doctoral dissertation on the relationship between the Covenant Church and American religious culture in the 20th century. So um, it's my area of research and expertise, and I don't spend a lot of time there now, but I know some stuff. I've maybe heard a handful of stories over the years about (laughs) your research and your understanding of who we are as evangelicals. Um, In a previous episode, Covenant historian Phil Anderson talked about the Americanization of the Covenant in the 1930s. Can you tell us about the next decade? Like what was happening in North America in the 40s? How did that impact covenant identity? Sure. Well, I listened to that episode and I thought it was a great episode. Shout out to Phil (laughs) Uh, and uh, (laughs) and you and and Jane. Um, I would say that Phil introduced a concept that I think is useful for us today uh, in terms of immigration studies. uh, And that is the language of accommodation and resistance, right? So sometimes when people think about how immigrants adjust to American culture, they talk about either Americanization or assimilation. And that's not a word that people really use. Uh, Instead, immigrant groups accommodate to the culture uh, that they're in, but they also uh, resist that a little bit as they maintain uh, more traditional identities in the midst of that process of Americanization. And that definitely is what's happening in mid-century in the covenant. (coughs) Covenanters were becoming more and more comfortable in their cultural setting. Uh, By World War II, the denomination had adopted English English as its lingua franca. Uh, The the denomination had already adopted English as its formal language for all of its business. Most covenanters by this point, uh, second and third generation covenanters would have had English as their primary language or at least been mostly comfortable speaking it. Um, In the mid 1930s, uh, on the eve of the World War II decade, Um, The Covenant had appointed T.W. Anderson as its first American-born president, uh, which indicates that we were becoming more and more comfortable uh, in the setting where we were. As uh, as Covenanters were joining the middle class, uh, a lot of Covenanters who were writing in our periodicals and magazines were a little nervous about that success because they thought that by Uh, Joining the middle class, we were maybe forgetting a little bit of who we were. We were grasping the American dream, but maybe leaving behind some of our identity framework. Mm. 
And as part of that transition, right, one of the key Americanizing influences in the American covenant was mainstream American evangelicalism. Uh, I coined a term that nobody likes, right? Uh, and that is that uh, covenanters were evangelicalizing uh, at the time uh, of the 1940s and 50s. Um, it, was an, it was an Americanizing influence on the covenant more and more as rank and file members of the church, they were attending revivals. Uh, they were going to uh, evangelical colleges and universities. They were reading evangelical periodicals. Uh, they were consuming evangelical devotional materials. They were uh, really joining the fabric, not only of the theological evangelicalism, but of cultural American evangelicalism. And as many young covenanters were becoming evangelical, um, some covenant leaders, maybe of the previous generation, were a little fearful of that increased level of accommodation. And I, and I do have just a brief quote here that I wrote down from uh, covenant pastor Yalmar Sundquist. He noted that young covenanters were being influenced by reformed and holiness doctrines that were wooing them away from their Lutheran heritage and their theological identity. Here is specifically how he put it. He said this, and I'm quoting here, through various agencies like the printed page and the radio, through Bible institutes sponsored by independent groups, through popular teachers and speakers, sometimes invited to Mission Covenant summer conferences, and Bible camps, through independent and undenominational Bible classes and other agencies, strange doctrines unheard of by our fathers and founders are constantly being disseminated for the, quote, edification of young covenanters. Doctrines like eternal security and entire sanctification and the second work of grace. That's a Methodist one. And many other vagaries including an extreme system of dispensationalism unknown to our fathers and to the Christian church as a whole until the relatively modern age. Hmm. And that's the end of that quote. <laughs> so uh, we were joining, but we were a little nervous about it. Hmm. Could you actually talk a bit more about the contours of American evangelicalism and how the covenant <clears throat> has historically fit with, within that space? Well, the way that the way that we have put it uh, in our own documents, and this is uh, something that anybody can find online, uh, the Covenant publishes a brochure on what does it mean to be a Covenant Church, or mm -hmm. what does it mean to be a Covenanter. Can't remember the exact title, but they put it this way. There were four things they say, and I've always res resonated with these. One is that we are evangelical but not exclusive. Two, we are biblical but not doctrinaire. Three. We are congregational, but not independent. And four, we are traditional, but not rigid. So as uh, Tim Yak Johnson likes to put it, covenants are what we might refer to as raging moderates, uh, <laughs> is the way that he uh, thinks about us. Covenanters, while evangelical, have always been evangelical with a difference. Uh, we've always been a subset of evangelicalism relating to it, but always a little bit different because we put in our, uh, our cultural boat, our, our, our church boat, uh, culturally and historically downstream from many of the historical conflicts that have divided American Christians and influenced their movement. Um, I would say that's because of a carefully constructed and progressively defended identity that emerged from a specific 
cultural and theological heritage. So the covenant has always had what you might call card-carrying fundamentalists or mainstream evangelicals as part of the church, increasingly so in the 20th century. Uh, people like Gus F. Johnson was a leading member of the World Christian Fundamentalist Association. Paul Reese, a covenant pastor and leader, eventually became president of the National Association of Evangelicals. So we were there in the middle of it. But that spirit informed, but never quite dominated or fully explained what it meant to be covenant. Uh, it's always been something a little bit different. Can you tell us a little more then about how that identity was shaped? Where did that come from? Well, <clears throat> one way of thinking about a, a what it means to be evangelical. This is a word, by the way, if you read any book on evangelicalism, history or theology, the first chapter or the introduction is a lengthy uh, 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 treatise on defining that word. Mm -hmm. And nobody can really define it. It's a weird one. <laughs> it's a movement. It's a spirit. It's a, uh, it's a series of traits. It's a, 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 you know, it doesn't have a president. So how do you define it? Um, and, and, and usually all the same sources are quoted <laughs> about, you know, some people say it means this. Some people say it means this. Yeah. Uh, but one of those sources that's always quoted that at least is a a place to start, uh, as it turns out, uh, increasingly a really problematic place to start, but it's a place to start, uh, is what's known as uh, Bebbington's Quadrilateral. David Bebbington is actually an English historian of evangelicalism, and he talks about four things that unite or describe uh, most in the evangelical tradition. The first is conversion, uh, emphasis on the new birth. The second is crucicentrism, or focusing on the atoning work of Christ who came to die for sinners. The third is Biblicism. Evangelicals are people of the book, both theologically and devotionally. And finally, uh, uh, in his quadrilateral, uh, evangelicals are activists, which means largely that we like to share what we know and think with everybody else. Uh, we're evangelistic. Um, we can talk later about why contemporary scholars are a little troubled by uh, Bebbington's definition of, of evangelical, largely because it's primarily about theology and what we think uh, and less about the culture that shapes us. So, so contemporary thinkers are, are uh, sort of thinking differently about these categories. But the covenant, certainly when you use those four categories, man, that sounds covenant, right? Uh, we are all of those things. Uh, we, we believe in new life in Christ and the new birth, uh, uh, the centrality of the work of Christ. We're people of the book and we share what we think with others. But in terms of uh, sort of dominant American mainstream evangelicalism, there's a lot of ways to distinguish the covenant uh, from others uh, within the movement. But, but here's a few that, that might uh, <clears throat> help us make sense out of it. Uh, the first um, is how we read the Bible. Um, historically, covenanters have avoided the trade-off presented to us during the fundamentalist modernist conflict uh, of the 1920s and 30s that, that led evangelicals to focus more on exclusive doctrine rather than on community edification. So we don't read the Bible primarily for the formal doctrines in it, and we don't look to exclude people based on the way that we read the Bible, but we read it to draw us together into a common understanding of Christian identity and discipleship and the church being the church together. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the second might be ecclesiology. Um, uh, evangelical conservatives in their era, uh, in the mid-20th mid century, were advocates of 
coming out. Uh, they actually called it come outism, but yeah. it didn't mean what we mean uh, today. It means uh, that they were coming out of their denominations. They were leaving behind their liberal denominations and churches to create new ones. That's why in these era you see a proliferation of uh, Presbyterian and other denominations during this time. But the covenant did not split and no one group divided and left. Um, we differed. And when I say we differed, we differed. We fought. We had significant theological conflict in this era. But as historian, his historian Carl Olson put it, the covenant decided to sail the ship of state with both strict and loose constructionists on board. Right. So we didn't abandon community and family with one another. We disagreed, but we stayed together. Third, I think we had views on the end times. Uh, while Covenanters were influenced by D.L. Moody and that movement that I mentioned earlier uh, that Gjallmar Sundqvist talked about, uh, dispensational premillennialism, uh, which is, you know, the belief in the rapture, that the world is going to hell in a handbasket and we're going to get rescued from a world that's getting worse and worse. Uh, most Christians in the covenant uh, didn't think about it that way. Uh, the way Zenas Hawkinson put it, he said, Covenanters didn't believe in the rapture. We just believe that you ought to have your bags packed, <laughs> <laughs> right? That, that uh, we were uh, preparing for a world that was greater and bigger than the one we were in. And then finally, what I would say, one way that we might be a little bit different from main, mainstream evangelicals um, is that that same period in the 1920s and 30s of fundamentalism versus modernism that plagued uh, the American evangelical movement, um, Christians were asked to decide about whether or not the Christian faith was primarily about saving the souls or about saving the world. Do you believe that Christianity is about saving yourself and living justly before God, or do you believe that Christianity is about saving the world? Uh, some called it the social gospel, making the world a more just place. And covenanters fully, and I would say in our literature across the board, dozens if not scores of times formally rejected that trade-off uh, because uh, uh, we instead always talked about affirming the whole gospel because the whole gospel addresses both. Uh, and there's 20 things that I could use to describe that affirmation, but I chose the words of uh, Pastor Herbert Palmquist in 1941. This is how he put it. The question is not whether we take our stand by the social gospel or the individual gospel, but whether we accept the whole gospel, which I believe includes both. We have no right to spiritualize every social expression of our Lord and thus dim the light of social passion, which glowed in his breast. He is not less Lord because he is Lord of every area of life. And we are not less Christian because our sympathies encompassed the entire needs of every person. He said that in 1941, <laughs> right? So this is a strong affirmation of the social and the justice commitment of the church in a period where uh, perspectives on that were really dividing American evangelicals. So you mentioned um, that we kind of entered the evangelical story in North America downstream a little bit. Can you say a little bit more about that, about how the, because right now evangelicals like the rest of this country are maybe not unified about everything, including in our church, but also let's talk about the mainstream, right? Like, so there's those conflicts that you're saying were happening a hundred years ago. 
they're, they're still pretty present in the church right now, right? So can you help us understand like like where the covenant stepped into that story and maybe why we didn't split like other denominations did a while ago and why we look different maybe on the evangelical landscape? Sure. Um, you know, the covenant had its own fundamentalist crisis in the 1920s. Mm. Um, and it was an annual meeting in the late 1920s where formal charges were brought uh, against uh, David Nival, uh, who was at that point president of the college and seminary, um, and Nils Lund, who was professor of New Testament. And they were charged with modernism and irreligion and liberalism and a whole host of things. Um, and eventually, right, uh, we decided uh, certainly not to throw them out uh, and developed a mediating position. And that's a history we could talk about uh, at length another time. But the key thing about that particular position, right, at that particular time, is that in the wake of that and in the, co- in, the in the midst of that, um, what you might call sort of covenant thinkers, right, people like David Nival, articulated their vision and their version of a mediating perspective on how, like, for example, how we read the Bible. Uh, David Nival thought that fundamentalists were guilty of what he called bible olatry, which means that they made an idol out of the Bible. They actually worshipped the Bible instead of the God and the spirit behind the Bible that gives it life. Uh, the words of Scripture had become so wooden uh, to be used to fashion a cudgel to beat people with rather than to be the redeeming words of a loving God. Uh, and so uh, there was a sense in which uh, as the community uh, sort of hardened on theological uh, lines, um, they were brought up on charges uh, and the way that eventually those were settled, right, um, is the people who brought them and the people who received them and how they defended themselves eventually accepted their responsibility and were also uh, carefully remained within the fold. Right, again, like I said, Olson before, the way that he put it was, we sailed the ship of state with constructionists, and, with loose constructionists and strict constructionists on board. Uh, we, if, if, if the covenant could make it through the fundamentalist modernist controversy in that era without splitting, it means that they did so because at that point they were still largely within the ethnic envelope. These were cousins and brothers-in-law and sisters and spouses and family members. In the covenant, we call it slek to slek, right? Everybody knew each other, right? So we had an ethnic envelope of traditions that that binded us, bound us, mm-hmm. binded, bound uh, mm-hmm. us together. Uh, and and the quest, the issue is, is that as divisive issues within American religious culture begin to continue throughout the whole 20th century, what happens when those familial, those filial binds, uh, uh, binders that hold us together, what happens when they start to break? Because the covenant is a lot different now, right? We, we, even by the time you get to the 40s and 50s, we're not all siblings and cousins and brothers and sisters-in-law. Yeah. Uh, we're diversifying and we're changing uh, at one point, um, um, you know, even historians like Carl Olson uh, were really nervous about all the newcomers coming into the covenant because they came to spiritual maturity in a tradition that didn't think and look at the world the way we did, mm-hmm. right? So they're bringing in all their views, right? <laughs> and and we want to be careful to maintain our views because that's what holds us together in the midst of the possibility of genuine tension. 
What do we contribute to the contemporary landscape of evangelicalism amid cultural divisions today? Boy, that's a that's a big question um, and, and, and a hard one. Um, I would say um, uh, a little bit about my own story, real quick, about why I'm uh, why I became a Covenanter. Um, I uh, was born into the Covenant. I was a child at uh, uh, Trinity Covenant Church in Lexington, Massachusetts. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, the church was only weeks or months old. The actual physical structure was only uh, uh, very, very new uh, when I was born. Uh, the Covenant Church in Cambridge, Massachusetts had just relocated to Lexington with a great deal of hope and excitement about the future that they would have in that space. Uh, and that space is now a uh, uh, now part of High Rock, uh, the High Rock group of churches in, in Massachusetts and in New England. Um, but uh, when I was a child, uh, eight years old, uh, we moved to Oklahoma City. Uh, and for a, an East Coast Covenanter moving to Oklahoma, that was like uh, moving to the moon uh, culturally. We, 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 we lost our touchstone. Uh, and so I grew up in a Baptist church. Um, Baptist, because in, in Oklahoma, you had to be Baptist. Uh, we weren't necessarily part of a Baptist denomination. It was an independent church. We called ourselves Baptist. Uh, and it's all the pastors were from Dallas Theological Seminary at a very, very conservative, what I would call small F fundamentalist theological upbringing. Um, I uh, eventually, uh, with my options, uh, as I got older, I decided to go to Wheaton College. Um, had a great experience as an undergraduate there. But uh, when I was a junior in college, um, I, I began to chafe. <laughs> uh, I began to chafe under the yoke uh, of my evangelical upbringing. Um, um, I loved learning. I thought learning was really important. And, and, I, and I realized I was part of a tradition uh, that thought the mind was bad. Uh, it was dangerous. If you, if you learn too much, you might not accept the, the basic truths of what the Bible says anymore. Um, I was having an expansive opening understanding of the world with a commitment to justice. And I was part of a, I grew up going to the rescue mission in Oklahoma City where uh, we wouldn't feed the homeless people until they heard a, a hellfire and brimstone sermon because food does no good unless you know that you're trying to avoid hell first. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I, was, I was trying to figure out who I was um, and, uh, and my faith uh, was in crisis. And it's then that I found the covenant. Um, and of course, I, I knew the covenant. I'd been going to covenant churches uh, on vacation and with family my whole life. But it's then that I grasped the spirit of the covenant, uh, that, that it was a community that valued new life in Christ and an open, expressive, engaging, ironic, uh, life-giving generosity to the way people thought and experienced the world. Um, for me, it was understanding my own heritage. Phil talked about Hansen's Law. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a third-generation immigrant, mm -hmm. so I wanted to understand these people. Mm -hmm. um, I had the privilege of living in Massachusetts for a long period of time with my grandfather, uh, who was a Swedish immigrant, um, and I spent an hour a week with him for several months, maybe more than a year, where I just listened to him talk and tell stories, and I was rediscovering myself. Um, and so for me, the covenant became that place where I could, where I could be a Christian, uh, but not a jerk. <laughs> uh, 
Um, and and it it saved me, right? It it kept me tethered to the historic uh, Christian truths that shape me in the movement. So. So you ask then, what does the covenant have to offer in our current context? It has that, right? Uh, if, if you know anything about contemporary work and research among scholars of religion and sociologists, and, as well as other disciplines, um, young people have said enough when it comes to the church. Um, you know, before about before the year two thousand, the number of people who checked the word other on a on a on a on a uh, uh, questionnaire about their faith commitment, uh, the number of people who said none, which means I have no religious affiliation, uh, never eclipsed five percent. Hmm. That number for people thirty five and younger is now almost forty percent. Wow. Right. Uh, what's happened in American evangelicalism has caused uh, young people to say the heck with that. I mean. I, you know, all the division and the anger and the bitterness and the fighting and the uh, what do I want to have? What do I want to do with that? Um, and so, you know, we also have the, you know, what we call the SBNRs, the spiritual but not religious. It's not that people don't believe in God. They just can't stand the church. Right. Um, and the covenant has a heritage of uh, strong affirmation of orthodox Christian, evangelical Christian faith, um, but without that sort of uh, divisive, exclusive destruction or destructive uh, uh, way of using uh, faith more as a way to, to judge and to bash rather than to include and to love. So, so I think our history, the way that the covenant made its way through the middle decades of the 20th century is the spirit that could figure out a way to help move us forward into what we're addressing even in the present. Can you give us some specific examples of what that looked like? Yeah, uh, sure. I mean, I can, um, uh, about how the covenant did this. Right? One example in the 1940s, especially the 1950s, right after the World War II era, uh, was the question of the ecumenical movement, right? Um, if you were going to be uh, ecumenical, it meant that you were going to relate to other religious bodies. Um, as you might imagine, theological conservatives thought ecumenism was really bad, right? Because what it did was it caused you to compromise, right? So, so for example, uh, even Billy Graham, for example, was uh, uh, he was accused by uh, conservative evangelicals and fundamentalists of being too liberal. Uh, in fact, for example, Bob Jones of Bob Jones University in, in uh, South Carolina, he said that Billy Graham was the biggest instrument of the devil in the 20th century. And the reason is because at his revivals, he shared the stage with liberals. Wow. Right. Uh, and so, you know, there was this, uh, if the more conservative you were, the more you didn't want to relate to other bodies because they would corrupt the faith. Of course, the more progressive you were, right, the more liberal you were, you thought relating to others outside of your own tradition was great. But here's how the covenant studied it. Uh, in 1958, they formed something at an annual meeting uh, called the Comity Commission. They studied for a couple of years. Uh, and at that point, they were dealing with a very specific question. If we are going to join an ecumenical organization, is it going to be, number one, the National Council of Churches? Uh, which is uh, uh, the sort of uh, mainstream, mainline liberal Protestant body in America, to the National Association of Evangelicals, 
or three, uh, the American Council of Christian Churches, which was a fundamentalist group headed by uh, a guy by the name of Carl McIntyre. So they studied it for a couple of years. They came back to the church, and in typical covenant fashion, the decision was as follows. Attend all of them and join none of them, mm-hmm. right? Uh, be open to engaging with as many people as possible under the umbrella of Christian mission, but don't uh, limit yourself by identifying yourself with only one group. And here's how they phrased it. And notice this language. Uh, and I'm quoting here. Our recommendation is that the covenant not now affiliate with any ecumenical organization of national or international scope. And now listen to their justification. Any movement, we believe, to join any such body at the present time would precipitate a deep cleavage in our ranks and do harm to the causes that constitute the very heart of the covenant. We are convinced that ecumenicity does not consist primarily of official organizations or equal uh, machinery, but in spirit of understanding and of cooperation with the whole church as the body of Christ in the world, right? Notice that expansive, embracing, engaging view of the broader global Christian community. And notice, covenant unity trumped everything. We don't want to pick, because if we do, we're going to alienate one another. We're going to break up our family. Uh, it's a strong, uh, a strong example, I think, of uh, in those middle decades of the 20th century, how we, how we framed that. Kurt, as you tell these stories, it seems like it, it's interesting to hear like how the covenant is trying to find this middle way the, of, of not landing in one extreme or the other. Can you tell us more about how, how that got enacted? How did that get fleshed out as they make those decisions? Yeah, middle, middle way um, is, is, is a good term. People use it all the time. I like the term middle way more than compromise. Because compromise means that you're losing somehow. You, you get some of what you want, but you're losing some of what you want. And the middle way means that you're genuinely finding a different, a different way, um, a way of remaining together in the midst of conflict and division. This might be a story that will illustrate what I'm talking about. Um, <clears throat> Henry Gustafson was a, was a New Testament professor at uh, North Park Seminary in the 60s. Uh, actually, he was appointed to a three-year teaching position uh, in the mid-50s uh, while he was still a student at University of Chicago Divinity School. Um, when he graduated, he stayed on North Park faculty. Uh, I actually stayed until the, the late 1960s. Uh, but at a Covenant uh, Midwinter Conference in 1965, uh, he was uh, presenting a series of lectures, continuing education to ministers. Um, and he said this quote, the authority of the Bible is a limited authority, unquote. Um, he went on um, to, say, to say this. He said, uh, the book is not God. It is man's response to God's action. It is written in man's language and by human instruments who reflect the cultures of their people and the knowledge of their times. Because human cultures change and human knowledge grows, there are aspects of thought, knowledge, and behavior in the Bible that are not authoritative for us today, unquote. Well, as I mentioned before, the covenant is filled uh, and has always been and is now filled with 
multiple persuasions of relationships to American evangelicalism, and most covenanters have a much more conservative inspiration understanding of the Bible than that. Uh, and uh, Car historian Carl Olson actually put it this way. He said his words dropped like a bolt of lightning uh, on the ministerium. Um, someone actually stood up in his presentation and said, I repudiate your right to teach in our seminary. And Gustafson responded, I repudiate your right to repudiate me, right? So the, the, the wheels kind of came off awfully fast. Uh, but later on, uh, uh, within several months, almost 60 covenant pastors submitted a petition uh, to the board of North Park College and Theological Seminary. At that point, that's what they were called. Uh, and they claimed that they were abandoning the conservative view of Scripture. Um, and I, I thought that was a, a, a very interesting uh, charge and uh, certainly another crisis in the wake of all that we're experiencing. A little bit out of our timetable, it's in the 60s. Um, uh, eventually, uh, at that time, uh, at the end of that meeting, the, 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 the annual meeting formed a, quote, committee to study the seminary, unquote. And they presented a couple of years later something totally covenant right? Kind of like the way they solved the ecumenical issue. Uh, uh, they responded uh, and they said they want to uh, foster a spirit of acceptance and respect for divergent views, right? So, so they, they were open, we're engaged, we include everything. But then they also said they made a formal recommendation that the seminary hire a fully trained and qualified teacher. And listen to this. This is a quote who holds to the more conservative position on scripture, unquote, to be hired at the seminary. Uh, so they hired Don Madvig, who was actually the first holder of that position. And since then, uh, there has self-consciously been a member of the North Park Biblical Studies faculty that is uh, specifically identifies what we would call with a more traditionally conservative evangelical inspiration understanding of scripture, right? So the way the covenant addressed that one was to say, we have a dominant ethos, but we're divergent, right? So if we're gonna accept Henry Gustafson, we have to represent the other as well in the training of our ministers. So there's genuine diversity, I think, in terms of the way that the church chooses to solve. So Kurt, as our final question, can you just kind of sum up how did covenanters historically understand themselves to be evangelical? Yeah, there's a uh, of course, it kind of depends on who you ask. Uh, there were fundamentalists as part of the, the denomination, right? Um, I'll never forget, you know, when I was, uh, when I was doing my doctoral dissertation research, I, I taught Sunday school uh, for a period of time at uh, uh, Northwest Covenant Church in Mount Prospect. And I, uh, I did a, a word association exercise at the beginning of that unit. I said, uh, the word is fundamentalist. What do you think? What comes to mind when you hear that word? 
And I'm thinking, you know, like gun-toting terrorists and, uh, you know, people who are, who are, you know, rigid and, you know, too disciplined. And, and, you know, all these lovely, you know, septa and octogenarian hands went up in the room. I think of, you know, believing in the Bible. I think of Jesus' love for me. I, I think of belief in the importance of the church. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, like, uh, it's not what I thought I was going to hear, right? So, so, so. How we relate to American evangelicalism depends on who you ask in the church because there's a broad swath uh, mm. of relationships uh, to mainstream evangelicalism. Um, but, but what I can do that might provide a little bit of context is to think a little bit about how you know, faculty members and leading covenant pastors at North Park and in covenant churches may have thought about it. And there's dozens of ways you can, you can explain it. But the one that I thought was real helpful was actually uh, some words from F. Burton Nelson, who was a long-term theological ethicist at the seminary. He said, uh, as far as he was concerned, to be an evangelical was to believe five things. Human sinfulness, divine redemption, sanctified living, biblical authority, and ongoing reliance on God's mercy. Now, notice there he said biblical authority, not biblical inspiration, right? Mm. Uh, the word inspiration was a tricky word because it became a doctrine of verbal inspiration. And if you don't believe it, you're out, right? So covenanters tend to use words like affirmations and uh, authority as opposed to doctrine or inspiration, right? Because that's that we, we don't want to cage ourselves off. He said that a congregation would be called truly evangelical, quote, that, and when they proclaim, quote, that, and I, forgive the, the pronouns here for just a minute, that man in his sin has been found by a loving God, a revelation communicated to him through the Bible, and that he is called to witness to this good news to all people. So for Nelson and others, to be evangelical was to resonate with the chords struck in the Reformation. Uh, when you look at our documentation on the affirmations, on the first page, we are a Reformation church, right? Uh, the covenant was a Reformation church filtered through the pietist renewal and Swedish immigration to North America. It was also an American church, but it was more than that. It was something before it was that. It was a Reformation pietistic uh, uh, renewal-oriented movement, and we struck those chords in the present to look at the past as to who we were. So if we talk about this today, today's covenanters can think about themselves as evangelical, not primarily because we identify with that mysteriously claimed 81% in the last election or because we think one particular thing culturally or theologically or politically or whatever. We consider ourselves evangelical because we're a Reformation church, because we believe in uh, the authority of scripture. We believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to transform lives. Uh, we, we believe that the Bible is important to guide our lives and who we are as people. We, we believe that we rely upon the mercy and the grace of God on a daily basis. And we believe that God is at work in the world, redeeming the whole world uh, to God. 
Uh, and, and that's how we are evangelical, not because we identify with a particular cultural location, but because we have a, a trajectory, a, a historical identity that claims a mediating, embracing, engaging, redemptive understanding of faith. Dennis, thank you for being here. Dennis Edwards is Associate Professor of New Testament at North Park Theological Seminary. So excited to hear your perspective on this episode on the covenant and evangelicalism. So can we just start by talking about the contours of American evangelicalism and how the covenant fits within that space today? Yes, I'll do my best. I don't consider myself a, a uh, any expert on church history, but certainly as a as a pastor and as someone who teaches pastors, I get to see things uh, pretty up close, you know, as well as from a, um, a, a bigger perspective or a little bit of a, uh, a bird's eye view. I, as we've seen, um, you know, since the uh, sort of that um, classic fundamentalist, modernist um, debates of the past, I think we've seen evangelicalism sort of for a while, uh, taking up a sort of a middle space, right? Not fundamentalist, um, maybe not rigid, if we kind of associate rigidity with fundamentalism, but uh, but also not um, maybe classically liberal. Uh, that word liberal gets overused, but what we mean are people who may have um, a different perspective on scripture or maybe even doubt the um, historicity of, of the Bible particularly as it relates to the Gospels and the, uh, say, a literal resurrection of Jesus. So evangelicalism fit in the middle somewhere. Um, and for many Americans, I think without even calling themselves evangelical, that was the space that uh, many Christians occupied, I think. Um, I would say the biggest numbers even uh, borne out by um, by uh, surveys would say most fit in there. So apart from the word evangelical, evangelicals, uh, uh, existed in that middle space. So I would say that those contours, the, the covenant um, fits in there because the covenant's ethos is to be very generous about uh, what we believe and and what others might believe and to focus on things that we consider to be more central and, um, and not to fall into either extreme of being a hardline fundamentalist or being uh, or doubting, say, the um, truthfulness of the historical uh, creeds concerning Jesus. So that's what I've seen in the covenant, um, and I'm happy to have found a home there. Is that kind of getting at what we're talking about? Mm -hmm, definitely. <laughs> so how do we stand out apart from mainstream America evangelicalism, or do we? Hmm. And why do you think that's the case? Wow. Well, you know, as I was saying, that space in the middle is pretty big. <laughs> But then I started to wonder in recent years, is there even a middle <laughs> anymore? In other words, um, there seems to be with this label evangelical, more sense of fundamentalism um, being um, a part and parcel of what it means to follow Jesus for some people. So what we've seen certainly in recent years is how uh, evangelical became a voting block, uh, certainly ever since the uh, Reagan era with, um, you know, after Jimmy Carter, actually, in Newsweek had that, uh, had that article on the uh, rise of the evangelical. Um, 
there was a sense that evangelicalism meant more than um, belief in certain doctrinal points or certain uh, historical aspects of the Christian faith. So that distinction between evangelical and fundamental, I think, got blurred and maybe still is blurred. And I say that mostly by means of observation, not by the all the data, although I think the data bears out, certainly in the last couple election cycles, that um, that people who hold to a certain um, set of beliefs that we would have called evangelical are really more comfortable in a camp that we might label as fundamental uh, or fundamentalism. The covenant church still occupies that middle space, but but I would say that um, recent years have shown that it's a struggle for us as well. In other words, there are some churches, for example, that um, don't have women preach. And we have said that that's something that's important to us. We've said for you know almost 50 years or so. And uh, <laughs> yet at the same time, we will still find congregations that would have women do certain aspects of ministry, but not preach and certainly not lead or become pastors. Uh, those churches might lend more toward a fundamentalist perspective. We certainly have um, seen as some of our own ministers and, you know, whether it's on Facebook or other spaces, duking it out around election season. Um, so it's it's been hard to say, do we stand apart from mainstream um, evangelicalism in a way that I felt like we used to? Um, but I say that more anecdotally. My experience uh, has has been with people who tend to be happy in this middle space. I mean, we tend to be people who uh, believe in Jesus, believe in a literal resurrection of Jesus from the dead, who, who uh, approach the scriptures fair-mindedly and not rigidly. Yet at the same time, we don't um, buy into a certain uh, nationalist kind of Christianity. That, to me, is a good place for the covenant to be, although I would say certainly even in our denomination there are um, there are challenges to staying in the middle. And I say that somewhat um, casually, you know, to say challenges, maybe I'm being a bit facetious, but the reality of it is, is we have with, you know, we have fundamentalist kind of perspectives in our camp as well. And um, the problem, I think, with fundamentalism is that there tends to be... Um, a gatekeeping. There tends to be a, um, a building sort of a, a wall or a fence or kind of separating oneself off from the others or separating your group off from others. Whereas people who are in the middle tend to be more comfortable with dialogue and ambiguity and questions. And, and, uh, and folks who are uncomfortable with questions, who want to have all the answers, tend to move over into fundamentalist space. And there's something comforting in that space that feels like, oh, I have this right, or we've worked it all out. Um, so I can see uh, the logic of people moving in that direction, but I think the, pro the one of the problems that comes with it is the inability to have conversation or fellowship or true um, give and take with those who don't share every particular perspective of your um, more um, uh, hardline or limited place. I'm trying to not caricature uh, people, so I'm fishing for the right kind of adjectives, but people who tend to uh, feel pretty secure in their beliefs and don't want to question things uh, do tend to be more fundamentalist. And I would say the covenant has been comfortable with having a lot of charity on things that we uh, might not agree with uh, each other, and um, especially things that are not about some of those uh, central tenets of Christian faith. 
starting to name these cultural challenges. Yeah. Um, and there's been, I haven't heard this discussion as much in recent years, probably because we're talking about how evangelicals vote and we're not mm. talking as much about the word evangelical, but there has been mm -hmm. that discussion, like, should we drop it from the name of this church? Right. Does it, is it the space that, mm. is the is the word ruined? <laughs> can we, yeah. can it be redeemed? Who are we as we mm -hmm. identify as the Covenant Church? Right. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Well, that's a great question. And I admit I've wrestled with it myself. I, I have not called myself an evangelical. And the irony is when I came into the Evangelical Covenant Church, it was around the time I had pretty much been fed up with that term evangelical. And I thought, oh, this is ironic. I'm in a denomination. <laughs> yet, yet our ethos was something that was different from this stereotypical notion of evangelical. So I, I don't, I'm not intending to be controversial on a podcast, but I would be one of those people that would be fine with dropping that word evangelical, even though I understand there's a historic perspective to it. There's, But, but the problem with words is that um, we rarely um, think about the history of words when we're using them. <laughs> in other words, vocabulary changes all the time. Words are in flux uh, all the time. And it's frustrating to the purist. I'm, a, I'm sort of a, a, a grammatical purist, and it's frustrating to me that grammar changes too. So I would be comfortable losing that word because I think it's been co-opted. And, and rather than trying to redeem something, I'm all for creating something fresh and new and different. And it's interesting because colloquially with friends who think like I do, we tend to just say the covenant or we or sometimes just ECC, even though we know what the E stands for. I think we, even in the way we've communicated, we're trying to distance ourselves from from that um, uh, maybe the uh, the legacy of evangelical or, or the more recent history of evangelical that is weighted or freighted with some kind of baggage. So, yeah, I would be happy with something else. And I'm all for new energy around something. But, you know. I also know there's complications to changing things, but I, I think rather than trying to um, redeem a name, it's kind of nice to lead with our distinctives, to lead with what makes us um, fresh and different. And part of that I've seen is, is the way we have been embracing, say, even a multicultural perspective of the faith. I see that in the covenant in ways, I, and I know we're not perfect, certainly I'm not naive, but I would say there's a... Um, a deliberation about that more so than I've seen in other in my past, and and folks who don't know me, I've had a pretty weird uh, Christian journey. You know, I grew up in a pretty narrow um, fundamentalist, charismatic church that is um, it's a small denomination, so many people don't know it, but it was very rigid, and it was they thought that no one else was saved except them, and. Uh, and the way that you had to be saved was pretty formulaic. You had to speak in tongues, not for a second blessing. That was the, the evidence that you were a Christian, and you had to be baptized in Jesus' name, not Father, Son, Holy Ghost. So we had a pretty rigid perspective, and anybody who didn't fit into that was not really saved. And then I you know, started to uh, branch out and became more aware of other, other churches. I was ordained in the Evangelical Free Church after coming out of Trinity Seminary because I didn't know anything, and that's the seminary I was told to go to. And uh, and I started learning more, and I left that denomination. I became ordained in the Mennonite Church, and the Mennonite Church, much more passionate about justice and such. So I was pretty comfortable there, um, but still I wasn't um, 
uh, I wasn't sort of hitting my stride with the with the ministry I think God had given to me. And I found that more so when I came to the covenant and I kind of breathed easily and said, oh, this is really the place that fits me. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Mm-hmm. How how did you come? What was your journey like coming yeah. into the covenant? Yeah, thank you for asking. I had been a pastor in, well, I church planted in New York with the Evangelical Free Church, and uh, that was a struggle. Um, I could, that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> we could talk, have a whole journey about church planting. But when I left that, I went to Washington, D.C. and was hired by a church that had been founded by Mennonites. So at first, I didn't change my credential. I was able to serve there with my Evangelical Free Church credential. But the senior pastor left, and I, as the associate, was asked to take over those responsibilities, first on an interim basis, and then I was voted to be the lead pastor. And I I then had my credential transferred into the Mennonite Church, and I found a home with Anabaptist theology. I found a space. Um but the uh, the church was uh, presented other problems. A lot of the issues were related to racial dynamics in Washington D.C., and I won't get into all of that. But I left that church after several years and um, finished my doctoral studies, and uh, then I planted a church called Peace Fellowship in a different part of Washington D.C. So all together was about eighteen years of Washington D.C. But when I felt it was time to turn that church over, and I was open to the Lord. Uh, leading me to full-time teaching or to something else that the, the um, I got, I got a message from somebody I knew in DC was now living in Minneapolis saying the sanctuary covenant church was looking for a pastor. And I, I had known who pastor Ephraim was uh, pastor Ephraim Smith. Many of the listeners will know him and sort of a rock star in our denomination. So the idea of following the rock star was not appealing to me, <laughs> <laughs> but my friend uh, suggested that I really follow up with the search committee. And I prayed about this. And after a lot of, uh, well, a long journey, I then went through the process and eventually was voted in unanimously to be the uh, senior pastor at the sanctuary. That was not my awareness of the covenant. I was already aware of the covenant, but that was my um, actually joining into the covenant. So I went through the orientation classes and had my credential transferred. That process started back in 2012. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Dennis. Um, we're just wondering, as we kind of wrap up this conversation, yeah. what word to the church do you have to share mm-hmm. as we... Yes, thank you. I... You know, I'm I'm pretty much a straight shooter, and I um I could probably talk a long time on this, but I won't talk a lot. I the word that has been with me for a long time is the word humility, and I've actually um and I didn't mean to do a shameless plug, but I have a manuscript into University Press right now on biblical humility and I, I think its role in helping to uh, strengthen Christian community, and uh, I I feel like there's there's a fear in American culture of being humble because <laughs> we think we'll be doormats. I think humility really asks the question is, why are there people who are doormats? I mean, why, why are people being taken advantage of? So I think humble people pay attention to those who have been marginalized and humble people are not threatened by the um, people who have power or at least think they have power. I My word is for the evangelical free church to, oh my goodness. <laughs> I can't believe I made that Freudian (laughs) slip there. And, you know, rather than edit that out, laugh along with us. (laughs) 
because I have a word for them too, but I, but they but they didn't ask me right now. <laughs> they didn't ask me right now. My word for the Evangelical Covenant Church, the denomination of which I am part, is to practice that humility and to not be um, worried about um, what other movements are doing or saying. We have we have a, a space that we can fill. And in that humble posture, as we listen to those who are on the margins, we listen to those who've been taken advantage of, we actually model something that I don't think others are modeling. I mean, people are looking for big and flashy and fancy. And, and I think the space that we can fill is one that says, you know what? We're not worried about those things as much as we are concerned about people not being left behind and not being pushed aside. So I, I want us to, to embrace that space. I want us to be comfortable with that space. I think that means we can get more people coming to our seminary. <laughs> I would love to see more people come to the seminary. And it doesn't mean they're all going to be pastors, but it means with theological education, they'll be more useful in certain spaces, more uh, equipped, better, uh, better uh, resourced to handle certain questions, whatever they're doing for a living. And I would like to see us... Um, um, not worry about um, being um, big and flashy, but being strong and being thoughtful, uh, being compassionate, being loving. I think those are, that's a word for us. Yeah. Thank you, friends, for listening to this episode of the Love the Cove podcast. And if you'd like to share your story of when you became covenant, please send us an email at lovethecove at covechurch.org. Bye now.